special relationships, and transatlantic correspondence galore. It's time for another installment of New York Real Talk on Siren Radio and Southside Broadcasting. It is the 19th episode of New York Real Talk, so clearly Pamela Suman was very keen to have an extra special guest for episode 19. And indeed, if it's true that all the world is a stage and we are, much, we are but players on it, and indeed if a play is the thing to capture the conscience of the king, who better than a terrific drama coordinator, extraordinaire, director, coordinator, oh, so many wonderful things. It's Heather Lanza who's with us today. How are you, Heather? Hi, everybody. How's it going? It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute delight. Of course, you're a New York City-based director, arts educator, and teaching artist. You completed your BA in directing for Fordham University. You had your MA in applied theatre. You've certainly been theatrically coordinated over your lifespan so far, Heather. <laughs> yes, it's always been um, sort of in my blood and in my roots. You know, I kind of started out like a lot of young people as an actor and as a performer and um, really wasn't until like college that I realized I was a little bit more suited for the backstage stuff. But yeah, I think that's why thinking about like young artist training and stuff like that, it always feels really important that they get the chance to perform, but also get the the chance to really understand what it means to make work and and be creative, you know, in different different ways on a theatrical production, for sure. And we can never underestimate just how important the performing arts actually are to not only people's intrinsic health and well-being, both mentally and physically, but across the, the, the whole area. I mean, it's whatever your perspective on life, whether you are a, uh, a materialist, whether you're a spiritualist, <laughs> whether you're a priestly person, whether you're actually looking for the fourth coordinating side of things and, and looking for the, the incarnation, drama is something that actually really crosses all over all of those boundaries. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think especially, you know, with everything that's been going on over the last two years, I think that uh, when you say stuff about like, you know, sort of what those boundaries are and those just needs for it, I think that um, the isolation and, and the, what that's done to sort of not just students, but, you know, everybody is is really, to me, feels like it's more the time to really need the arts and need theater and storytelling, you know, more than ever to really kind of process, you know, this collective thing we've been going through for the last two years. Well, the reason I actually dropped into some Shakespeare is because I know Pamela was very impressed when for episode 17, <laughs> Jonathan Lindsley, not only did he uh, wax lyrical about his experience at the Bristol Vic and a whole variety of other uh, systems as well, uh, but he also, of course, was in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is always <laughs> wonderful. So, so that's great. So, Pamela, would you like to formally introduce Jonathan Lindsley to New York Real Talk for our theatrical special? Yes, um, I don't think that I could do a, a, a more articulate job than you. So I will just say um, with us is uh, we have the, the honor of having Jonathan Lindsley. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Hello. Can you see me? Because I can't see myself, so I don't know if I'm... It's no, all right, there. Jonathan. We've got sound and that's all we need for radio, strangely <laughs> enough. So it's all, all oh, good. Okay. Well, yeah, strangely enough, that's true. And thank you for inviting me, and um, and thank you for uh, having me along on 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 this episode. And yes, I'm an actor, and um, and so I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Let's open up the questioning. I think Pamela, would you like to uh, start off the? I won't say interrogation, Heather, because it's it's not it's not quite <laughs> as serious as that. Although it has to be said that you know uh, people often uh, tremble when I I sort of put them uh, into the, the Pamela Sue Man spotlight. So that's that's by the way. Anyway. Pamela, over to you. 
I would say that I'm probably the one trembling right now. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm just so honored to to have Heather and Jonathan on the show. It's, it's very exciting. Um, and um, I came to meet Heather through through um, the school that my daughter attends. And I sort of came in through the back door in the sense that I didn't really fully know what, um, what Waterwell organization um, was about and was doing. We were all just trying to get our kids into a good theater school <laughs> and um, really did not know what to expect. But we uh, recently, over the past few months, we were able to go to a live performance, uh, which is incredible, um, of, of um, a play called Indecent. And um, I believe Heather directed that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And my daughter and I were both blown away um, there were so many facets of it to be blown away by, but the, the kids were, were speaking and singing in different languages. The subject material was really intense. They were covering it with so much maturity for, for people their age. I think they're about 17 years old, most of them maybe. Um, and just the, 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 the staging, the, um, I don't know what the, the proper uh, the, theatrical word for cinematography is, but whatever was going on <laughs> on stage and the projections and, it was just on a whole other level than I even thought could could be possible for that age group. Um, so I thought, oh God, I would love to have Heather on this show to explain more about, or even begin to explain more because we'd love to have you come back um, about firstly, how you got involved with Waterwell and what Waterwell does, because it's not just the teaching for children. It's, it's, a, it's a theatrical organization, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Waterwell is a sort of, we like to say like a civic minded theater company that really thinks a lot about theater and theater making as a way to sort of build bridges between um, communities that maybe normally aren't in dialogue with each other and sort of raise questions and, and spark community dialogue. So we sort of have two branches of our of the company, one which is the arts education wing, which is, um, you know, how we're in partnership at the Professional Performing Arts School. And then the other is our professional producing wing of the organization as well. Um, so yeah, really putting up a lot of um, work, uh, both for, you know, audiences outside of the school setting and inside the school setting that is really kind of asking audiences to, you know, kind of reflect on the world that we're in and, and the, the sort of way they can view themselves as change makers is, is something that's really important. And I think that um, how I got involved in Waterwell, you know, it was funny, I, um, actually assistant directed a show at a space that was um, Waterwell's production of Good Bar um, was kind of the next show in the space and it shared a lot of the design team and um, technicians. And so I sort of became really interested in um, their devising process at the time they were really doing all of their work through ensemble based devising um, and sort of tracked them through um, over the years after that, and then, you know, I was doing um, a, a bit more arts education work um, at the time when they were posting for a new director of education, and it really felt like a perfect fit because, um, yeah, I think, like, it's very rare to find an organization that sort of holds... Um, you know, this idea of civic based art making at the forefront of what it does both, you know, theatrically and, and in terms of the arts education work and that was really exciting to me and still is. Waterwell itself actually as a drama program actually is in residency at the Professional Performing Arts School in New York, serves over 200 students each year. Presumably there's a lot of comp competition to actually get in there, Heather. 
There is. It's kind of crazy. I mean, so to go to PPIS, it's, you know, New York City public school that's open to really any young person um, in the five boroughs. You really just have to have a permanent address in New York to be able to audition. And we audition fifth graders for middle school seats and then um, eighth graders for high school seats. And it's really tiny. You know, the high school program is usually capped at around 30 students per class, um, same for the middle school. And, and we get, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of students applying each year. So it's always really exciting. Uh, we're about to start our audition process this year. And it's always really, you know, invigorating to get to see so much energy and so much excitement about the program every year. Perhaps we should bring in Jonathan at this point, because we've managed to sort out the camera scenarios. Uh, oh, Jonathan, yeah. I, I could wax lyrical about Lambda and my experiences with the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, but you're in a different routine, because obviously you made the whole acting world your profession. You've worked within that whole field. You've gone from Hollywood movies, or indeed two Hollywood movies, through a whole variety of other things. So, Jonathan, uh, any questions or any sort of aspects you'd like to share with, uh, with Heather? Uh, well, I think it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, it is a very competitive world, and 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 rejection is part of our world. So the audition process. Uh, just listening to what Heather said there about how very competitive it is to get into 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 um, the, the the school. Um, that is that's been my experience as well as a, as a, as a, both as a professional and a, and and as a student. Uh, it, it always has been. I have always hankered after well I've, <clears throat> I was once a teacher um, at the uh, at a youth theatre I was invited to uh, put on a play for a youth theatre and one of the things that I decided to do was not exclude anybody based on talent or ability so anybody who wanted to be in my play could be in my play and do anything they wanted to do which sounds a bit unstructured but actually as it turned out it was brilliant it was great fun and um, because I was aware that so often uh, people are turned down, um, I think it's that experience when you're a kid and you're playing a sport and the best kids get picked first and then the ones who are rubbish at the sport get the last selection by the team captains. You know that thing where you line up against the wall? I don't know if that happens in New York, but it certainly happens all over the UK. And, um, and so I wanted everybody to have a go to see if they were any good. And um, some people blossomed who possibly would have, I might even have rejected them myself. So I do think that there's something about the theatre, but it is an incredibly competitive world. And if you want to go into it as a profession, then you have to be aware that rejection is an enormous part of, a, of our world. And, uh, and you, you either get the job or you don't get the job. And you have to find a way of explaining it uh, for yourself. Um, because if you take it as a knock to your talent, then, then you really, you, you might as well give up. So I always looked at myself as a, as a, as a refrigerator. And, um, and I always thought, well, I'm perfectly good at keeping the food fresh and I'm perfectly good at keeping things frozen if they want to be frozen. Um, but I don't fit everybody's kitchen. But if somebody selects another refrigerator from down the row, then uh, they will get the, that, that obviously they fitted their kitchen, but uh, it doesn't make me any less of a refrigerator. And that was my way of um, explaining my, my, the, the or coping with the rejection in uh, when I first started as an actor. Um, but anyway, that's um, I don't know whether that's relevant or not. Really, Jonathan, back, back in the day, a hundred or so years ago, we had Alexandra with his relaxation technique. I can now see the Jonathan Lindsley refrigerator approach to acting uh, suddenly actually <laughs> bursting, bursting into the twenty first century. Well, it was just it, yeah, it was just um, it was a way of making it. Uh, you know, it could be a refrigerator or it could be a, a cooker. 
it doesn't really matter. But uh, that's the sequel. Yes, absolutely. I remember <laughs> doing the remember doing the Alexander technique. Yes, that was quite good as well. But I've always, um, I funnily enough, before we met tonight, I was just uh, talking to Pamela about this, and I I said to Pamela that as a child, I would I was uh, I was a great team player. I always believed in in teamwork on stage, and I always believed that everybody should support everybody else. And my mother told me this, I'd forgotten, but at five years old, um, I was in a primary school play. Um, we were all reciting nursery rhymes, I expect. Um, and I was probably little Jack Horner sat in the corner or something. I can't remember what I was playing. But I, I not only learned my nursery rhyme, I learned all the other kids' nursery rhymes. And if they didn't know the words, I got up and told them what they were and then pointed them in the right direction so that they were visible in front of the stage. So I think perhaps I was one of nature's natural directors as well, really. Um, but I've always believed that the whole show, the whole experience for the audience is the most important thing and not showing off as an actor, which um, there are quite a lot of show-off actors who wouldn't perhaps have done that so well. <laughs> but uh, I've always enjoyed that anyway, and I've always believed in teamwork. I, I don't like the... I like the idea of supporting artists uh, when we do... when we film... I don't like calling people extras because they're not extra. They're part of the team. They're part of producing the, the finished work and they can make or break something just in the same way that the music can or the lighting can or anything else. So everybody who works to make a piece of theatre, I think, is part of a team. And I, I've always believed in that very much so. So I like the idea of, of, what, um, uh, of what we were talking about a minute ago, which is that thing of people um, uh, being collaborative and creating together. I think that's very important. Is that something, Heather, that you try to embed within Waterwall and the whole your 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 projects, etc.? That sense of collaboration and teamwork. Oh yeah, it's definitely we talk about it really ad nauseum, and I think for me, it's sort of like both in terms of my own artistic practice and my teaching practice is really kind of the most important thing. It's it's something that I think when you think about theater as an art form, as opposed to film or some other, you know, you know, expressive arts, like that to me is the big difference is that every member of the ensemble, and that includes, you know, the run crew and the designers and the actors and everybody is equally as important in getting that story told. And so I think a lot of what we do um, in our program for our young artists is really like push that to the forefront. That's why we do a lot of devising and generative work in the program, because uh, we really, want to kind of break away in this hierarchical model of like, okay, the playwright and the plays the thing and then the director and then everybody else. No, it's like, we're all here trying to tell a story. And part of what you need to learn is how can you do sort of what Jonathan is saying? I, I think of it as like breaking away the ego and, and, and making it not about you as the solo performer and thinking about like, what is, what is the story we're trying to tell to our audience? What are we trying to get them to walk away questioning or thinking or reflecting on and then what can I and in my individual role do to sort of help push that story to the forefront and I think it's something that's really hard for teenagers right I think it's just developmentally you know a, a time in our lives where our brains are still forming and we're used to kind of thinking about you know us first and that's why I think that theater training is so important is because it really forces a young person to go against that sort of natural impulse and really think about how are they supporting their peers, supporting their ensemble, all of that. That's really I'd like to come to your school, Heather. Yeah. <laughs> come on, join us, join us. <laughs> you know, thinking about what you're saying, it is so interesting because 
you're you're right the idea of the ensemble and um how it is such a particular age the, the teenage years um and i i can speak to that because i'm a 16 year old um and how then you've got this 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 and 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 by the way i can say that um my daughter is involved in 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 a play with Waterwell with the school right now and loving it you know and they're they're all really tired because they're going to school and then they're going to 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 rehearsal and coming home late and then doing the next thing again again and then on saturdays as well but they're they're loving it and i really feel i'm i'm feeling this expansiveness happen that you know i happen to know about because i've been in bands and i've worked on record projects and tours and things like that and so has my husband but that my daughter's getting to experience and not just in in the the theater group she's been involved in, but in a whole new environment in a school in New York City with people who are professionals and they're working with these people and they're teaching them that it is such another sort of an education, an education in the in the, in the collectiveness and the community and how important that is and how you can just again, you know, sort the ego out and expand beyond yourself and have more compassion for everyone. I think that's isn't that shouldn't everyone learn that. <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's wonderful the work that you guys are doing. Thanks. Yeah, I think for us, we talk a lot about um, empathy and sort of like building the empathy muscle. And I think that especially the world being such a mess like that, I do think that's something that like everybody needs to work on is how to be empathetic. And I think as an actor, like you're asking someone to literally step into another person's shoes, usually someone who wasn't necessarily a real person and sort of uh, understand their perspective and understand where they're coming from. And I think that's something that is lost a lot. And so it really, really is important uh, to, to, know how to view other people's perspectives with a kind and understanding lens. And I think that's that's what theater training really does. Heather, we work an awful lot with, uh, well, native voices at the Autry, uh, particularly with uh, co-founding members, Jean Bruce Scott and Randy Reinholtz. Um, is there something also you're conscious and aware of? And I think Pamela might have put you in touch, actually, with with, with Jean or Randy in, in, in a sort of previous sort of incarnation. Is, is that something, again, which uh, we, we, we're conscious of the fact that there are lots of hidden voices, voices that actually in certainly America have kind of, for various reasons, not necessarily been able to actually express their own particular stories? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's curious to me because I would also like, a thing I think about a lot is like lost canon, quote unquote, and is it that certain populations haven't been given, haven't expressed their stories or just haven't been given the, you know, popularized mainstream attention um, that other, you know, white Western, you know, typically Euro-based models of theater and, and writers have gotten. So that to me is, I think that there's so much conversation right now about decolonizing the canon and expanding the curriculum. Um, and I get very frustrated when folks are like, oh, but there, are, there aren't enough plays out there by artists of color. I'm like, no, they're there. Like, you just need to know where to look and where to ask. So that's just something that I think is a really important like reframe that I've been putting on my brain. And I think it's a big problem in American theater training because of how rooted we are in sort of that like holdover Stanislavski, you know, Euro white um, way of thinking about arts training. And I think that, um, you know, working in New York City public schools, it's, uh, you know, at the same time, one of the most diverse cities in the world, but also one of the most segregated school systems in the world. So um, teaching in an environment that is really bringing together 
you know, an incredibly diverse in every sort of, you know, way of what that means, gender, race, socioeconomics, et cetera. You really, to me, it's about thinking, you know, no one way of working and no one model of training is going to work for everyone. And so when I'm thinking a lot about kind of decolonizing curriculum, I'm thinking about like, how are we providing as many enrolls for as many different um, ways of working and ways of thinking about theater making and storytelling as possible. And I also think it's really about um, providing the context of what it is we're learning. So I'm, you know, if a program is only teaching Shakespeare, I would say, why? <laughs> what are you trying to get at with that? And it's not to say that Shakespeare shouldn't be in a curriculum, it absolutely should be, but how can we provide the context of like, well, why is Shakespeare held up? Um, you know, as such a important part of the canon, you know, what context was he writing in at the time? Who are other writers that are actually using language in similar ways who are maybe not male or not white or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that feels really important. And I think that something that's really cool about students now, at least in New York, is that like, they want that and they want to call out the bullshit so bad. Like, I think they are really trying to take back an art form that was framed as for the people right and became really elitist and became really white and really try to push it to sort of be a, a reflection of you know what they want to see in society or the flaws they see in society and and a more democratizing way of looking at theater well certainly for every uh, notion of stanislavski and his uh, his particular approach there's a brechtian person who actually wants to just stand away from it and just distantiate the whole process but there we are let's 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 not go to, <laughs> I'm, I've got to ask the question from your website heather uh, as you can see we for, for the benefit of the listener and indeed people who actually look on facebook we like to obviously feature some background which is usually connected within that Lord knows Jonathan's still actually recovering from his pirate shots that we actually use for that point of view. I might pull that up later. Um, but in terms of, uh, of of your location, though, I love that, that it's New York Real Talk, but where exactly, I mean, what's the reflection of the skyscrapers that we see there? Where, where exactly was that shot actually taken? So that was actually taken in our offices um, or our former offices, which is very sad to process. Um, but we had, Waterwell had offices in the old McGraw-Hill build. Uh, building right on 8th and 42nd. Um, so that was sort of the view from our office that we had for about four or five years, um, which we love. And it was it, it was really like there's there was something about that view and the building itself is like super mad many. I don't know if you've ever been there. It like feels like really old school New York architecture. They're doing a big project to like revitalize the building. Um, felt really like iconic New York in a way that was very, very cool and exciting. We actually don't have the office anymore. We were, um, you know, our lease was up kind of right before the pandemic. And we were lucky that we were able to pivot out of being tied <laughs> to a New York uh, office for a minute. But it is sad because it did definitely feel like, you know, this really iconic space uh, that we loved. But, but in these days of uh, Zoom worlds, et cetera, who needs officers anymore? I mean, you just go there I to know. catch bugs, et cetera. Honestly, you know, it's yep. completely uh, different, different system. Um, and, and before I sort of hand back to Pablo and, and Jonathan, um, any relation whatsoever to Mario Lanza? I just needed to ask. Unfortunately, no. I wish, and I get that all the time. Um, I wish I either had a direct relation or any of his musical skills and abilities, but alas, it's just just carrying on the namesake. <laughs> oh, that, 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 that makes sense. Jo Jonathan, anything you want to throw into the mix? Uh, no, uh, just to explain that um, my background at the moment on my, uh, behind me is, um, is, uh, is um, Nora Batty's Cottage. 
And um, I'm in, from Last uh, of the Summer Wine, which, which is a television program that I used to do many years ago and is still going out somewhere in the world. Um, yeah, it's called Last of the Summer Wine, and um, I'm visiting here, and um, so that's explaining why it's slightly oddly uh, lit. And um, the cottage inside is just like your grandma's house. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's fairly extraordinary. So. Um, I just thought I'd throw that background in, and I'm not and related. It's, all, to it's also important, Jonathan, that we maintain <laughs> the, act, the, the, the the sort of the uh, the mythology as British folk that actually we just live in hovels and cottages compared with those skyscrapers <laughs> of New York and all those yes, fabulous, glamorous American people with you know John Hamm just round the corner and so on. <laughs> yes, no, the, it, this is this is not particularly glamorous in indoors, but uh, there's a lot of tourists visit this place because it was featured heavily in 200 and something 209 episodes of the television show when it was shown here in the in the uk right from 1972 to 2010 i think it finished so um so yes there's quite a number of people staring in the windows of this cottage yeah it's just the way we are you know it's, it, it happens pamela i think that's a suitable segue into wacky new york stories yeah, well, oh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> um, and before before I, I do that, I'm going to um, say one thing that I think is really important um, as a perspective. I remember when I when I went to music college, the, the music school I went to had a lot of professionals teaching, just as you know, as Waterwell with PPAS and the various majors. And one thing that I did, and I was older because I was college age, but one thing that these kids sometimes from uh, middle school on, or sometimes, you know, which we say is like probably about age 10, 11, something, because um, I don't think there's middle school in the UK, um, that definitely in high school for these kids to be taught mm -hmm. by professionals and, and to be in that realm, suddenly it's not like, oh, I would love to be an actor or a singer or a dancer. And it's over there and here's a wall of impossibility it's suddenly you're you're working with professionals there's a light bulb that goes on which is not only do i want to do this and can i do this but i'm already doing it and he, these are real living breathing people that are teaching me and coaching me and it's it's it makes it seem absolutely possible that you could make your life exactly what you're doing now which is wonderful because then there's less fear for someone to actually not say, well, when I grow up, I want to be this, like you already are. And you're just, and I, and, and I think that to, you know, I want to thank Heather and, and institutions like that, because it's so profound the effect that it has. I mean, I'm a former student in a music school and that was the transition for me. And I never stopped doing that. And you're giving these kids and some of them could not afford otherwise to have this wonderful training. And, and yet they're, now they're doing it and this can be their life if they choose. If not, they gain amazing skills that they can use for anything. But if they choose to make this their vocation in life, they're already doing it. So I, I think I just wanna note that I think that is incredible. It's a really incredible opportunity um, for kids. So now to the wacky New York moment, which I don't think that I prepared you for Heather. <laughs> Like, Pamela, you never prepare anybody for the wacky New York moments. That's why it's such a surprise. Well, so everyone's got one, especially if you've lived here for a long time or if you're from here. Um, and there are many, 
but I'm wondering if there's something that you care to share with us that could come to mind about, you know, out of the ordinary, which is already wacky anyway, but a moment or an experience that you remember or can call up from being immersed in New York City and working here and living here. Is there something really wacky that has happened uh, that you would you'd like to share with us? <laughs> I mean, I feel like every day in New York is wacky. I feel like that's honestly like one of the things that's been like the saddest about the pandemic is like, I don't know, I feel like I, I've missed out on two years worth of just like weird stuff that you just are so normalized seeing in, in New York. Um, I'm trying to think, oh, gosh, to like pick one out is really, really challenging. I, I guess, um, you know, one that comes to mind was getting to work on a project. I, I won't say the artist's name, but with an actor um, a bunch of years back who um, is a very, 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 very well-known actor and is someone who is um, really kind of big in the like indie quirky film scene and it was on a theater piece um and it was the reason it, the, that's coming to mind is because it was my first time where I was working with an actor who was just that like kooky New York old school quirky actor like who had a process and you can interrupt the process and you can talk to them in the green room and then they like so it was a lot of that and it was to me it was just so funny and cool because I was like oh, wow, like some actors really are this <laughs> um, in a way that I like didn't really like I thought that was like just not real about New York. But yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind that's like tangentially theater related. But honestly, I just feel like every day on the subway is its own crazy performance art journey, kooky, overheard in New York kind of vibes for sure. Well, and thank you for sharing. Who would have thought that that actor... <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger would have actually gone on to become a California. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, but what the heck? <laughs> uh, and, and, and if you're uh, worried about Arnie, I'm sure his car crash wasn't that sort of traumatic. He's just had a sort of uh, a pile up in, in California. So all, all oh, no. let's, let's hope all's well. So, so that's the important thing. Um, music, Heather. Um, music is obviously uh, the, uh, the, the, the wonderful thing that soothes the savage breast. Are there any particular musical tracks that have influenced you or... You, you like to use as your own personal playlist when you're actually planning things out for Waterwell and more. Oh my gosh, I love music. I really grew up um, going to concerts starting at a really young age. And I worked at um, Jones Beach <laughs> Amphitheater for a bunch of years as an usher. Like live music, that's another one during the pandemic, like missing out on live music has been um, like really, really, really hard right now. Uh, in terms of like, go-to music it sort of depends on like what kind of mood I'm trying to hype myself up for um and it depends also if I'm working on a show and that's what I'm trying to hype myself up for music and images like when I'm directing usually kind of where I start so I often will like make a playlist for a given show that sort of like speaks to the themes and so that's sort of where I go but in terms of like work if I'm trying to get myself like hyped um I'm really really into I mean right now I would say it's like a lot of like Lizzo Megan Thee Stallion um <laughs> Cardi B kind of vibes but I said certified free seven days a week make that make that game weak yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
charge. Extra and extra. Put this right in your face. Swiping like a credit card. I wanna ride. I do a giggle. I'm kinda wild. Look at my mouth. Look at my thighs. This water is wet. Come take a dive. Tie me up like I'm surprised. That's role play. I wear disguise. I want you to park that Big Mac truck right in this little garage. Make me dream. Make it stream. I done public. Make the scene. I don't cook. I don't clean, but let Aye. me tell you, I got Aye. this ring. Got your plow, bite your lip. Ask for a call while you ride that dick. You really ride ain't me. never got him for a thing. He already made his mind up for you. Now get your boots, hang your coat. This wet, wet, wet. He bought a phone just for pictures of this wet, wet, wet. Pay my tuition just to get me on this wet, wet, wet. Now make it rain if you wanna see some wet, wet, wet. Look, I need a hard hit, I need a deep. I need a handy drink, I need a woo smoke Not a garden snake, I need a king cobra With a hook in it, hopefully lean over He got some money, then that's where I'm headed Cookie A1, just like his credit He got a beard, well I'm tryna I let him, mmm, now he diabetic I don't wanna, mmm, I wanna woo I wanna, I wanna, I wanna I want you to touch that, touch that That swing in the back of my Your honor, I'm a freak, handcuffs, leashes Switch my wig, make him feel like he cheating Put him on his knees, give him something to believe in Never lost a fight, but I'm looking for a In the food chain, I'm the one that eat you If he ate my He's a bottom feeder. Stand for big demeanor. I can make you before I ever meet you. If it don't hang, then he can't. You can't hurt my feelings, but I like pain. If you ill, me and ask who's is it when I ride the yeah, I'ma spell my name. Ah. Yeah, 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 you telling with some wet, wet, wet. Now from the top, make it drop. That's some wet, that's some wet. Now get a and a mop. That's some wet, that's some wet. I'm talking wop, wop, wop. That's some wet. Macaroni in a pot, that's some wet, that's some wet, huh? If I'm trying to like get myself ready to focus, it's a lot of like lumineers. I've been trying to do it right I've been living a lonely life I've been sleeping here instead I've been sleeping in my bed Sleeping in my bed So show me family All the blood that I will bleed
um, you know, um, Lord Huron, like that kind of just like zone in good lyrical stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of an equal opportunity music lover, kind of like anything except country I will vibe on and be into. So what is it with this loathe, hate or, or love country? It's astonishing. You know, it's always we worked through that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they dropped the and Western a few years ago just to kind of acclimatize, you know, the country people out there. Good stuff. Um, Lumineers, of course, we're, we're, we're familiar with. Did you say Megan the Stallion for some reason? Megan the Stallion. Yes. She's epic. Oh. She's amazing. She's a hip hop artist. She's incredible. Um, <laughs> awesome lyrics. Well, awesome just vibes. We, we, we shall endeavor to dig some Megan the Stallion out. No relation to Prince Harry, presumably. I assume not. I would say that that's probably a safe, um, oh, a oh, safe yeah. <laughs> bet on that. Yeah, you never know these days, but still. Um, Pamela, um, apart from saying that if people actually want to find out more details about Heather's awesome work, again, we mentioned it earlier, heatherlanza.com presumably would be the best place to, to go to. I mean, we've only scratched the surface, let's be honest, in terms of some of the fabulous things that you've actually put uh, into place at that point. Actually, I will throw in one last question, Heather. Um, what advice would you give to either a, a young British um, solo who might be listening to this, a student or indeed uh, a, a, an American student or a student anywhere globally well, who, who is looking to work within the arts field? What, what would your uh, or indeed maybe become a director? You know, what would you say? I would say, wow. Well, first, I would say. Keep finding the joy and the love in it, like uh, truly it's so like Jonathan was saying, it's so competitive and rejection is such a big part of it that if you don't really, really like love it and wake up every day being hungry to do it, not every moment, like I feel like that glamorizes it in a way that's not realistic. But like if that isn't the thing that drives you, maybe don't go for it. And I would say just like, find a group of collaborators that you love, find questions that you're asking that you want to ask yourself that you're interested in, and then find ways to make art exploring those questions. I think that there is even if you're not an actor, I mean, not a director or a playwright, I feel like so much of the industry is about like, waiting for other people to give you opportunities and I think that's why I like devising and finding core collaborators and writers you like working with is a great way to just make and I would say like make 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 don't wait for people to give you the opportunity and in sort of finding your own artistic voice um you know you'll find those connections you'll find that network you'll find those opportunities and then just get to grow your own artistry well, I'm still recovering from the notion of the refrigerator approach to acting or indeed the, uh, uh, the, the, the cooker sort of approach, which with the sequel. I think we, we need to work on that, Jonathan. We need to talk. We need to get this uh, out into the, uh, into the ether even more than these New York Real Talk podcasts. Indeed. Pamela, we have reached the time where you need to deliver the final NYRT questions before, of course, we start talking about pickles again. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> um. Well, in, in all seriousness, not that when we ask this question, we don't mean it, because we do, but we really, really mean Sincerity it. Sincerity <laughs> is the heart of the performance, Pamela. Sincerity from the soul. <laughs> um, Heather, have you had a good time with us? And would you come back soon and perhaps bring another wonderful Waterwell person with you that you could in turn interview as well, because that's what we're about. <laughs> that inclusivity and, 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 and bringing people in to talk about, because we, as, as, as Alex was saying, you know, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about and it's really important for right now. 
Would you? Would yeah, you absolutely. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I would love that. And I would love, you know, for you guys to get to meet some more of the team and the awesome, you know, artists and teachers and everybody kind of making it happen. So yeah, that'd be great. Is Jonathan just going to be ignored then, Pamela? I mean, it's okay. He, he, he was asked on, his, on the 17th show, but, you know, it's just a matter of thing. Maybe it's a British thing. I don't know. Jonathan, can I, may I message you in the future and, and say, please come on. No, would, um, have had a good time with us, Jonathan, and would you come back soon? Yeah, it's been a great pleasure to meet Heather and to listen to what Heather's doing, which I think is fantastic work in, in New York. And I'm very impressed by what she said. And, completely agree with her about the emotional side of of being involved as a performer and and the creative side of of because creativity is good for the soul and to to encourage children to to or young people to work hard and to and to to practice to get good at what they do because uh while you know everything when you're a teenager it's brilliant to to channel that into into the theater and um, and yes, I'm very happy to come back and talk again because I love talking to you. Thank you very much, Pamela. Coming from the heart of Nora Batty's cottage in Homeforth, West, West Yorkshire, that's clearly sort of very significant. Uh, that's it, Pamela. All we need to do now is not wait for the somewhat um, overweight singer to actually start working through the whole process. We need to look at the, uh, uh, the pickle. Yes. So New well, York yeah. Real Talk is... Home of the world's finest pickle. Nobody knows how to say goodbye. It seems so easy till you try. Then the moment. Passed you by Nobody knows how to say goodbye mm. Nobody knows how to get back home We set out so long ago Search the heaven and the earth below Nobody knows how to get back home
Nobody knows how the story ends. Live the day, do what you can. This is only where it began. Nobody knows how the story ends. Nobody knows how the story ends. Now, back in the 20th century, I recall a wonderful text called Everything I Needed to Know About Life I Learned from Star Trek. It's actually kept me busy and uh, occupied uh, way into my academic career for a whole coast of reasons. Uh, key thing, of course, being it relates, of course, to a television show. But what if television shows can actually inspire British folk to actually change jobs, switch jobs and actually deal with careers? Uh, New study by Future Learn has actually identified exactly this in terms of how television and streaming obsessions could be inspiring British folk to make different career choices. So to address this, we're delighted to welcome uh, ACE educational psychologist, Dr. Karen Cullen to the programme. How are you, Karen? Hi, thank you, Alex. Yeah, very well, thanks. Excellent. So, I mean, I cited obviously one instance there of uh, really the uh, narratives of a TV show being used as a parable, as a metaphor for life and so on. But I must admit, I'm somewhat uh, bemused by how people can be inspired by uh, some of the uh, series like Bridgerton and Squid Game and so on in terms of how they can connect with that. So, so talk us through what FutureLearn have actually discovered on this. Right. Um, so the study uh, commissioned by FutureLearn, it was a survey study uh, undertaken by CensusWide. It actually looked at people's viewing patterns and the reasons for why they chose the programmes they did. And they came up with a, a short list of eight most popular TV programmes. I'll mention those a little bit later. Um, but basically, the idea was that um, whatever people chose to watch in their leisure time, um, you know, and they had completely free choice was quite a good indicator of what interested and engaged them, you know, what they enjoyed um, thinking about. So that's that's the principle behind it, rather than the program actually inspiring them to, uh, you know, quite literally uh, emulate people in in that particular program. I mean, it might be the way that, you know, you might see a program like Cracker about forensic psychologists and think, oh, I'd love to be one of those. But um, the study by uh, FutureLearn was more more general than that. And what they did once they'd made this um, list of most popular TV programs, they've linked them to occupations and also very importantly to a range of courses now, it's fair to say that uh, we've, uh, we used to look back in the day at uh, how students were recruited to courses. And uh, I think a fair number of students actually decided to go in for forensic science because of the CSI series or indeed Cracker mm. as well. Um, mm. But given, given that pandemics are, well, one trusts a once in a lifetime experience. Um, I mean, is, is this something which in essence is just a blip in the data? Is it just a case of we can look forward to people being dissatisfied with their lives and swap? jobs and changing things on a whole variety of things or, or is it a case of well you know there is a clear connection between the media we consume and our kind of life intentions 
Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Definitely, this is an optimal time because of the way the pandemic has kind of drawn a line for many people. And um, they've been in a position where they've evaluated their lives and what they're doing and what they'd like to do. It's definitely um, uh, a ripe time. But um, the more general link between popular culture and um, people's preferences and the sort of activities that will suit them, I think there is something in this. It's not an exact science. There isn't a direct correlation, but it certainly is. Uh, if people are more analytical about the things that they know they uh, enjoy watching, that they're really deeply interested in, it, then it, it's obvious, isn't it? Those are areas that they could well um, be successful studying or even working in. One of my academic colleagues at Royal Holloway College, Professor Fiona Moore, I think has just completed a text on how uh, Game of Thrones can be applied to the business world. Yeah. Um, makes yeah. sense, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Although I wouldn't yeah. necessarily go for the, for, for the violence approach in there, but that's by the mm. by. Well, um, I mean, it, <laughs> is this something where, I mean, were you surprised by the, the kind of findings? I mean, the, the notion mm. that, let's go to back to Game of Thrones, it, it is looking at less traditional academic skills, which also incorporate creativity, storytelling and so on. So you, know, you might mm. well be inspired to actually follow a particular career pathway. Mm. Well, I mean, the themes drawn out of that particular production from Game of Thrones was um, an enjoyment in the fantasy element, the, the make-believe world, the world of imagination. And so there is a direct link there, obviously, with um, jobs and courses to do with the, um, the, the media industry. You know, whichever there's so many aspects of that, but in actually putting out a drama, either on TV or film or radio, whatever, um, involves lots and lots of skills and so uh, it is possible although it is I, I admit uh, it can be quite tenuous but it's possible that an interest there if cultivated through a course could lead into that field of work. One of the aspects about future learn of course I think one of the underlying uh, elements is that it's obviously uh, never too early or indeed too late to actually oh, start yeah. following your dream. Um, yeah. People listening to this, would you actually say, if, if you are interested in, uh, let's say, space and time and you're fascinated mm. by Doctor Who, maybe mm. take the Mysteries of the Universe astrobiology course? Yeah, or the other one is Life on Mars, which sounds quite intriguing. Um, yeah, definitely, because FutureLearn offers this vast, vast compendium of online courses, all different lengths. There's short courses, longer courses, um, degree level, uh, vocational courses, there are starter courses, um, they all come with different um, price brackets, some of them are even free for, as a taster, um, but they offer access and variety and of course because it's online, as you said at the beginning, you know, they, they can be undertaken by anybody, whatever age, whatever stage of their life, um, and at the pace that suits them and in a way that suits their learning style. And I'm all for that because it really is important that people's learning is very, um, very much personalised to, to their individual profile. I'm intrigued by the notion that people were uh, drawing inspiration from characters like the Peter Capaldi incarnation of Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it. I mean, looking at the present government, perhaps we should be surprised at where we are uh, in terms of uh, uh, general views on that point of view. But let's, let's, yeah. let's steer away from that one. Were, were you inspired, uh, Karen, by any particular mm. elements or when you were growing up? Obviously, because the television has been with us for quite some time well, now. I, I know. Yeah. And um, yes. 
not to put too fine a point on it, um, going back to when I was growing up is quite a few decades ago. Um, and so the range of what was available on the television uh, was much more limited compared to now. But I do remember as a teenager being riveted by a documentary about family therapy and then realising just how fascinated I was by people's inner lives, their relationships, their emotions, you know, what made people tick. And so then I started the long road of studies and then eventually becoming a practitioner psychologist, which in its way, its own way has led into different areas. So, yeah, I, I can remember that. And I would attribute that particular um, documentary that I watched. Well, perhaps the old Marshall McLuhan line about the medium being the message can be updated in terms of the medium as the message and the possible career outcome as well. But uh, well, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe so, so, <laughs> something to actually sort of ponder. Where can people yeah. go to to find out further details about this particular survey and indeed future? Yeah. Learning? Okay. So the link that I've got in front of me is www.futurelearn.com forward slash info forward slash tv hyphen shows excellent dr karen cullen it's been uh, splendid touching base with a good self and indeed somewhat fascinating in all sorts of ways uh, mm. so huge thanks keep on keeping on and hopefully we'll speak again in the not too distant future thanks alex that was great Sun always shines on TV. Oh.